whoever forgot to put your sweaty costume in the laundry bag, congratulations, you get to Febreze the dressing room. Welcome, everybody, to Minutes to Curtain by Miscreant Theater Collective. That's right, it's MTC by MTC! I'm Andrew Rogers, the executive swashbuckler of the Miscreant Theater Collective, and I am joined, as always, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And yet sometimes the fault is in Dylan McDonald. Thank you for joining me today, Dylan. <laughs> Maybe the fault was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> this is my friend San Andreas. Nope. I mean, Mariana yeah, if I, or something. Yeah, if I could yeah. think of a second fault, we would have done it there. <laughs> Turns out there's only one fault. <laughs> and it's yours. Uh, well... Uh, Again, thank you for joining me today, Dylan. Uh, today we are going to be discussing a play called The Scene, uh, which was written by Teresa Rebic, first performed sometime around 2006. So Dylan, I understand you have a summary of the play prepared for us. Don't you have something you're supposed to be doing? What do you mean? Like, I know we're doing a podcast, but like, oh, yeah. usually... We can't do the same bit twice. That's true. I I gotta be honest with you, Dylan. It's been a hell of a week. Okay, it's been a hell of a year. Existence is pain. I'm just drinking this week. Like, while while you're bearing your soul to me, I'm just gonna be drinking and, and, and chiming in. In fact, do you want anything? I've got, like, I've got, like, everything. You know, I don't really drink. Really? Well, I mean, if you're gonna twist my arm. I mean, you don't have to if you don't want I'll to. I'll do a double-double and a slippery nipple. Okay. All right. One D&D and a slip nip coming right up. All right. And so while you're preparing those drinks and then presumably sucking them down, I should be sumerizing? Yeah, you, you do you. All right. So let's talk about the scene. The scene is actually comprised of several scenes. It's it's weird, I know, but it's like, it's it's a play. Yeah, so I, I figure it out. Uh Scene one, we are introduced to three of the main characters of this play, Charlie, Lewis, and Clea. Clea is rambling incessantly about God knows what, sort of vapidly describing this beautiful party that they're at. It's some sort of upscale New York, you know, place to be kind of party. And she's talking about how the water and the air and, and the sights are all just so surreal. And Charlie is just, he's sick of it he's like that's not what surreal means you're dumb i don't want anything to do with this sorry i was being the water in the air and a leaf on the wind <laughs> lewis pretty obviously wants to get into clea's pants or whatever she might be wearing mm. she can she can wear whatever she wants or whatever she doesn't want great body positivity i appreciate she it does have a great body <laughs> Dumb. So, essentially, Charlie is just sick of this shit. He doesn't want to be at the party. He doesn't want to, definitely doesn't want to be talking to this woman. But Lewis is interested. He thinks that Clea is very attractive and is kind of defending her. And they're all talking back and forth. Charlie is also supposed to be at this party to talk to some guy named Nick. But he doesn't wind up doing that. And so anyways, there's some back and forth, there's some discussion of drinking, Clea says that she doesn't drink, but then, you know, she doesn't usually drink, I mean, not really, because she's, you know, got an alcoholic mother, but, you know, maybe a drink or two right now, so Lewis brings them all, all back drinks, and Clea launches into this discussion of this job she tried, she interviewed for today, with some talk show, and how the woman who ran it was just so cold and organized and refers to her as a Nazi priestess Ooh. and keeps describing this woman as you know, being cold, frigid. She's, quote-unquote, one of these women who can't have children herself, so is adopting a Chinese baby. Oh. Yeah. At which point, Lewis and Charlie, after allowing her to finish this rambling about how cold and terrible this woman was, they, they reveal that, like, that's Charlie's wife. That's where the first scene ends. Mm. We jump into the next scene where Lewis and Charlie are talking to Charlie's wife, Stella. She's the fourth character in this play. Mm -hmm. 
about this vapid airhead who was just going on and on about how terrible she was and how it turns out it was Charlie's wife. And so she gets a little defensive of herself, says, hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm well organized. I'm dependable. You know, I, I book for this bullshit talk show, but I'm really good at it. So who is she? You know, it sounds like I remember her. She can't even string a sentence together. Who is she to be talking shit about me? Yeah. And meanwhile, Stella's got the best highlighters. The, all of the highlighters. All of the highlighters. Every color. At some point, Stella asked Charlie about his conversation with Nick, which it turns out he didn't have. And she gets mad about that. Apparently, Nick has this pilot that's getting produced for TV, and there might be a part in it for Charlie. But Charlie would have to swallow his pride and say something nice about Nick. And he's said nothing nice about Nick at all so far. Um, at some point, Lewis... Stella is hungry and there's no food in the house because Charlie was supposed to get groceries but didn't. So Lewis offers to run down to the corner store and buy her some chips. Or maybe they could all go out to eat, but like he runs out. He leaves to get some chips. Um, they talk a little bit more. Charlie kind of tries to get frisky with her for a second, but sort of not happening. And Lewis comes back with just every flavor of chips. He's like, I wasn't sure what you'd want, so I bought them all. And that's sort of where this scene peters out. I think they agree to go out and get some dinner, but that's sort of where it's done. In the next scene, Lewis and Clea are kind of on a date. There's some more discussion of he, he asked her over for drinks and she just asked for water. And he's like, oh, no, that's fine. And some back and forth. And so, of course, Clea winds up drinking again um, some vodka. Oh, by the way, that sorry, that reminds me. I, I forgot your drink order, so I made you a 777 which is seven, seven, and sevens in seven minutes. So you got some drinking to do when you're done with this. Okay, so so I have seven minutes, or I just have to do them in seven minutes once I'm done? Once you're done, yeah. Okay. The entire consumption must take place in seven minutes. Sounds great. Can you get me something to drink in the meantime? Yeah, what do you want? I don't understand the question. Okay, I'll find you something. <laughs> Thank you. I'll rustle something up from the kitchen. <laughs> so we've got Clea and Lewis on this very awkward date, and... There's some indication that Clea knows that she has this perception around of everybody just sort of sees her as this as this woman who is very pretty, but also pretty dumb. And she she recognizes this and claims that that is not the case. But she keeps saying weird and stupid and like ridiculous things like how if you would just stop eating, you could live to like 150 years. It's the eating that's killing us all. Stuff like that. So, yeah. little piece of information that she has extrapolated into some absurd bullshit. But before you know it, Chris comes banging on the apartment door. And, and not that kind of banging. Damn. On the door, baby. Uh, comes banging on the apartment door, and Lewis opens, you know, Partially opens the door trying to tell him, like, hey, get out, I'm, I'm with a lady. And he just bursts in and starts going off about how he finally had this lunch with Nick. And Nick is just such an asshole. And I can't believe that the only way to get a job in this town is to just kiss the ass of anybody who might be able to throw you a bone. And it goes on and on and on. And Clea just loves it. Mm. He, you know, he grabs the bottle of vodka and just starts chugging from it. And he's so passionate and excitable about all this kind of stuff. And Clea is just egging him on. Like, yeah, this is so great. I've never seen you with this much energy. It's so cool to see you this way. And she tells Lewis to go out and, like, get us some food. Get us some pizzas. Um, Charlie, you, you're not going anywhere. You have to stay here and deal with this. And the second that Lewis exits the apartment, uh, Charlie and Clea start making out. They just go at it. it. Charlie resists for all of maybe a couple of seconds. That's where that scene ends. The next scene is Charlie and Clea in Charlie's, which is really Stella's, apartment. Mm -hmm. Stella pays for everything. And they have been having sex everywhere in the apartment. They they finish. They actually, the beginning, the beginning of the scene is them climaxing. Hey! hey it's the climax of the play! Yeah. A climax in the play. <laughs> <laughs> the only one we're aware of. That's true. Although not the only one I've had since you started talking. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so they finish. Charlie starts kind of getting things cleaned up, saying, Clea, you got to get out of here. We can't be doing this here. This is where I live with my wife. Clea is just seeing right through it, saying there's no reason that 
you would have brought me back here if you weren't interested in sort of the dirtiness of all of this. And then she starts talking about, hey, come to one of these parties. You know, come to this party that's really exclusive on a New York rooftop where everybody gets naked in a hot tub and then there's sushi and this stuff. And Charlie's like, I've been to a party exactly like that 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's all vapid bullshit. Once again, talking about how the whole industry of you know, Hollywood and New York are just full of these meaningless parties and engagements where people just get together to get naked and do cocaine. Wait, was Sounds it, terrible. Was it cocaine sushi? I don't know. I mean, I'm it smells good. I'm not a baker. <laughs> so they talk about this. Charlie says he doesn't want to go to the party, but he is still getting sort of re-seduced by Clea, and they start making out a bit, which is when Stella makes her appearance known. Hmm. Stella has been in the room for a while and sees everything that's going on and the the expected meltdown occurs Stella's like how could you do this to me Charlie doesn't really have a good answer other than I'm a piece of shit and I don't you know and you you're too competent is one of the things he says to Stella is like hmm. you're you're too much this this well put together good to be with woman like that's what I hate about you and Clea the whole time being her naive young self is like hey this is all going fine until you showed up Stella which is a hilarious thing to say to a woman whose husband you are fucking in the apartment that she pays for yep it's fantastic Uh, but so there's this big breakdown and Clea leaves there's a little bit more back and forth with Stella and, and Charlie but Charlie he basically doubles down and says you know what i I, i'm glad i did it i would do it again kind of thing and he leaves the apartment says i'm going to a party Mm. the next scene is stella and lewis talking about how they haven't seen or heard from charlie in a few days maybe a week they don't Mm. know they don't know what's going on there lewis does eventually reveal that he he got a sense that night when he went out for pizza and came back that there was something that may have started between Clea and Charlie. And Stella kind of comes to the conclusion that Lewis might have set that up. Mm-hmm. That he somehow knew that Charlie would come over that night and see Clea and and get involved. And Lewis doesn't admit to that, but he does admit to having loved Stella for forever, essentially, for as, as long as he's known her. And so that scene ends and we get into the final scene of the play, which is everybody at this big party again. It starts off with Stella running into Charlie. Like, oh my God, I haven't seen you in weeks. Where have you been? I, t- I tried to call you. I've been trying to track you down. Um, and Charlie's basically homeless. He, he says he's living with friends, but he looks like shit. He got his phone turned off. Lewis comes back and we discover that Lewis and Stella have gotten together and they're actually going to china next week to get this baby that stella and charlie were supposed to be adopting they're they're in a relationship now and it took them all of like three weeks to start moving in on charlie's woman charlie gets a little bit hostile about all of this stuff lewis and stella exit the scene we never see them again clea comes in and says hey lewis just told me that you're looking for me what the fuck are you doing here like i'm she's with nick now and she she tells Charlie, you're making all this super awkward. You're you're like the antagonist of this story now. It, Nick doesn't want to talk to you. You were such an asshole at that lunch. Basically tells him you need to leave. They walk outside the party, sort of hash it out. Clea says, I want nothing to do with you. You're a piece of shit. If you would just say something nice to Nick, he might let you play this homeless guy and this pilot they're still looking for. And then Clea goes back into the party, and the play ends with Charlie standing just outside the party trying to decide what to do next yeah curtains it's surreal nope what do you mean no no he says it i mean it is said okay he says at the end yes that that is true surreal is a word that is used to ill effect (laughs) well what a lovely summary dylan almost as lovely as you today I feel lovely. All right, let me get working on these seven, 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 seven. All right, thank you. I I can uh, I can cut you a little bit of a, a break on the timing because you know we're doing a podcast and everything like that. And what is time? I mean, time is meaningless, like so many other things. So let's talk about the uh, meaning of this meaningless <laughs> play. <laughs> Sorry, I stepped on your transition. That was that was going to be pretty good. Yeah, you were. I think you worked it out. Uh, 
what a what a weird read. The dialogue was amazing when we had this in our reading. I was I was crying laughing at parts of this, but also then I had to step back and wonder about as you said what the point of this was, whether or not we learned anything from this or or if it was supposed to be social commentary. What was your initial reaction to this? Well, I wrote it down because mm. Because it felt like exactly the way I feel. And so, to me, this is just a play about terrible people doing horrible things that they know they're going to hate. Hmm. Which is the best part about it. Like, <laughs> is, is that we see these people going headlong into some bullshit that they want no part of. And they just, they just go. If anything, they step on the gas. Like, Clea is repulsive intellectually to Charlie. Yes. He wants nothing to do with her. He... He critiques her use of the word surreal. He's like, you just use the word surreal to describe a lot of really basic real things. <laughs> like earth, wind, water, the other... Fire. Uh, the other Captain Planet. <laughs> heart. It was heart. heart. It was heart, yes. <laughs> it was the worst one by far. What did they call the, the ones that weren't Captain Planet? The Planeteers. That sounds right, but I'm that not sure. That does not sure. sound right. It just might actually be right. <laughs> anyway, anyways, any of those, and, and yet at the same time, he is at the drop of a hat. He is just absolutely willing to have sex with Cleo. Absolutely willing. Absolutely willing. He he hesitates for a single line in the play. He claims that he doesn't want it, but it's it's still he knows, and you know from the get go that Charlie is the kind of person who is going to just nag and snipe at every stupid fucking thing that Clea says yep. and like everything that Clea says is bound to be stupid so this is going to be a nightmare of a relationship for however long it does or does not last and yet he jumps right into it yep. for some reason and yet it's all still so believable it yeah it is it's almost as if uh, all of these characters and all these situations were written as intentional cliches I mean, yeah, I think they have to be. It feels like everybody so perfectly fills a particular type yeah. of what we've seen, you know, hundreds of times throughout plays mm -hmm. and films, you know, before and since this came out. Right. So Charlie, for example, uh, I mean, I, I think the first time we read about him, he's described as a washed up actor or an out of work actor, all of which, especially in the performing world kind of connotate a specific type of person but also he's an alcoholic uh he does not seem to be a particularly responsive and affectionate husband um he is like he immediately cheats on his wife who is in a way expecting a child with the hot young actress who suddenly starts showing up at these parties you you couldn't write a more stereotypical privileged middle-aged white man I mean, he literally pays no bills. All he is is his relationship to the people around him. And those things are so disappointing. It's so expected, everything that he does. And I think the same way with the other characters as well. Yeah, I think Charlie definitely is still trying to coast off of his apparent former fame. You know, when he used to work a lot as an actor, he is still expecting people to give him the level of respect that he would have received at the height of his career. Yeah. Um, but the one that I find really interesting is Clea. Okay. Because Clea is this, you know, you could have just named her Ingenue. <laughs> like she, yeah. she, she supposedly rolls into town from Ohio, you know, from yeah. small town nowhere, and, and came to New York because she was just... She's just too pretty. She once says, everybody wants to have sex with me. But she also says, everybody thinks I'm stupid. Which is an interesting thing for a stupid person to realize. Mm -hmm. Is that they recognize that everybody thinks... Clea knows for sure. Everybody thinks I'm stupid. She doesn't seem to agree. Right. She doesn't seem to realize exactly how dumb some of the things she says are. But she understands that that's the way she comes across. Mm -hmm. As this dumb but stunningly attractive woman and i think she uses that to her advantage yeah she, she plays off of everybody you know in the course of this play she is at least vaguely you know she gets lewis to kiss her and when lewis says i don't just want to fuck you her response isn't isn't to like oh well, what else do you like about me it's are you saying you don't want to fuck me right and lewis is like well no i'm not saying that 
And then in the same scene, she's having sex with Charlie. And by the end of the play, she is with Nick. And one of the things this reminds me of is this week's Inappropriate Reference of the Week. I'm adding beach noises. No, that's that's Lamaz. Semensa breathing. <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> okay, so what what is the I R O T W? It's it's on the page. Oh, there it is. <laughs> so this week, I want to tell you about a little movie called Bowfinger, nineteen ninety nine movie written by Steve Martin and actually directed by Frank Oz. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I looked it up today. It's it's weird. It, there are no puppets. Fuck, what was he thinking? I don't know. But, yeah, so, essentially this is a movie about an old, sort of, never was, has been director. Mm -hmm. Who's saved up all this money to try to get one good movie out. And the way that he sells it is by getting all of these sort of unknown actors and actresses together and telling them that they're going to be in a movie with a character played by Eddie Murphy. But but that Eddie Murphy's character is so method that they aren't even allowed to talk to him outside of the scenes. And so what it actually is is Eddie Murphy's character doesn't know he's in this movie. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin is just trying to use him to get something finally produced. But so one of the actors that he hires is Heather Graham. Mm. And she is, like, this exact same character. She's, like, fresh off the bus from, like, Nebraska. Blonde-haired, skinny, dim-witted, apparently. And she's like, oh, my God, I just want to really want to be in this movie. And I just I just came here, and I have no money. Like, can I please be in your movie? And so, of course, she gets in there. And over the course of the movie, she winds up sleeping with Steve Martin and Jamie Kennedy, who's, like, the camera operator. Oh. And... A bunch of different people. She sleeps with like five or six different people, all as a way of getting like a larger role in the movie so that she can build her star. So by the end of the movie, you realize that like, no, she wasn't she wasn't dumb at all. She wasn't naive. She was just using her wiles to get exactly what she wanted. Yeah. And there is no clearer analog in any movie that I've seen to that to Clea in this movie. Like she she comes across as very dull. Mm-hmm. Very dim, mm-hmm. but she she goes somewhere in this play where most oh, other yeah. most of the other characters don't. And honestly, I find it very surprising. Not the the Heather Graham stuff, but the fact that Jamie Kennedy was still getting work. Like, whoa! This was nineteen ninety nine. Oh, oh, it was peak Kennedy. Okay, pre peak Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think you're exactly right. She. Uh, Clea absolutely has a measure of agency here. She is at least aware enough of of her sexuality to use it as an advantage where she can. Which which is everywhere. Is everywhere, especially in the performative industries. I think that a great contrast to Clea is Stella. Now, it's impossible to talk about this character without understanding that every person who sees a play with a character named Stella will know the streetcar named Desire reference. It's a hundred percent guaranteed that you make a a fan of imported beer. No one is that excited about a Stella Artois. By the way, I knew one man, Stella, please sponsor us. After you just talk shit about it. You know what tastes better than a Febreze? <laughs> Stella Artois. <laughs> Have a Stella. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, I think that as part of the cliche nature of these characters, naming this particular scorned, abused, and yet compassionate and kind woman, Stella, is an obvious comparison to the Tennessee Williams play. Um, uh, it makes so much sense that it's actually a little bit annoying to me. And besides her being too competent, too good, like it's as if the author set out to write a character that was an actual angel, but he couldn't call them an angel just to underscore how shitty of a person Charlie is or as a great foil against Clea. 
Potentially, but I think there is actually some validity to Clea's reading of Stella as a Nazi priestess. I think think that what you see is Charlie and Lewis both defend Stella, say that she's a great person, Mm -hmm. she's awesome, because they're both in love with her. Yes. But there is definitely something to the idea that Charlie was so eager to cheat on her. Right. And that she does seem a little bit distant. You know, she didn't show up to the party in that first scene. Uh, everybody else did. Charlie didn't want to be there either, but he was. He had to be for appearances right. or because he was supposed to talk to Nick. But I think it's, I think that it is one of those things where Stella is that cold, competent, but, you know, and it's even brought up by Clea infertile. She can't have children of her own. She is adopting. That is so... That is such a common trope of a woman who has it all, th- that powerful businesswoman mm-hmm. who who can be a CEO of a company but can't mother a child, right? Or but desperately wants to. And I think that Clea and Stella make such good foils for each other. Clea is presumably dumb as a brick but sexy and exciting and young and imaginative and if we are to understand the inverse from all the references to Stella being infertile Clea must be very fertile but then you have Stella who is extremely intelligent extremely organized very good at what she does successful in all things except for the thing that biology prevents her it's not that she's not beautiful or attractive quite the opposite she's attractive in a much different way I believe that the author was using both of them to illustrate the dichotomy of how women are perceived if not only in the performative industries, but especially within the performative industries. Yeah, for sure. And it's heartbreaking because Stella appears to honestly be a good person. She's trying to support her husband and and his failing artistic goals. She's trying to be conscious of the world around her. Yeah, she may not like people, but she works hard and she's very proud of what she does. Yeah, I would say that the only flaw shown in Stella is that she... She very efficiently works for a talk show, which is basically a an artistic medium that she despises. Right. She's like, I have to book these dumbass airhead. You know, I, I booked this person for like the third time and I have to do all this stuff for the writer. And also they never show up. So I always have to book a backup person. And then people still get mad at me because the person I booked didn't keep their commitment. Right. Like that that's the one negative thing she's got. And also the backup person is peddling a whole bunch of bullshit like low carb pasta or, you know, guilt free mass production and things like that. And I think that comes that back really to, I, I think it really comes back to this idea of people trying to find a way to justify doing something that they know is bad for them or that they won't enjoy. But like, that's the thing is low carb pasta, you're still eating pasta. You know, pasta is carbs. So yes. like, so I want to eat pasta, but I want to not feel bad about it. And in a lot of ways, it's like, well, you got to fucking choose one but so what i want to talk about really briefly is i feel like stella and lewis are definitely positioned as the secondary characters and lewis particularly just strikes me as that prototypical sort of sidekick best friend who's who's only really there to try and make charlie look good Mm -hmm. like he's he's only around to do sort of nice things and to be a cowed individual who doesn't really have any of his own thoughts or feelings that's why yeah that's why the scene with lewis and clea on a date works works so well because lewis doesn't even really seem to have a personality (laughs) he's just there to ask clea questions and to fill space until charlie shows up i i think it's also important to recognize at least from an actor's perspective that lewis has to be enough of a vibrant self-evolved individual that that's not the case but he is kind of written that way however you could make an argument that lewis is actually an evil mastermind there is definitely an implication that that could be the case i i would say in the way that we read it and and the way that i read it personally 
I don't think it is, but you could definitely make that decision. And right. and this is where I think we get into the ambiguity in the play. And there are places in which that ambiguity absolutely is a strength because it allows the director and actors to make decisions on a performance-by-performance performance basis even. But there are other places where it makes it almost impossible to discern what the intended meaning was. Because there is a reading of Lewis that is that he is in love with Stella and mm -hmm. has been... Stella and Charlie have been together for like 14 years. Right. And Lewis admits during the play that he's been in love with Stella for essentially that entire time. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't deny the conclusion that he knew Charlie was going to come over the same night that Clea was there. Yeah. And that he potentially could have conspired to put them in the same room and then fucked right off. So that they would have really no choice but to begin this fling. But the problem is there's not enough there textually in Lewis's actions to say for sure yes he did that. Mm -hmm. Or to say for sure no he didn't do that. Yeah. So what you're left with is a directorial and an actor decision as to what kind of person is Lewis. And, right. And is he the kind of person who could be capable of all this. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the final scene with Lewis and Stella, where, depending on the reading, completely changes the weight of the relationship between Lewis and Stella. So if Lewis was the mastermind who finally got everything that he wanted in his best friend's wife, and they're going to have a happy little family, and now he gets to be the primary character... Wow, does Stella buy into the lie that she's been peddled? But if she knows, as is implied in her scene, that Lewis set all of this up and still decides to go adopt this baby with him, then she is sacrificing more in this than any other character. Either way, Stella ends up being a tragic character. As one of the people we've identified as probably the only good person here, uh, flawed but good, she sure gives up a lot at the end. Yeah, but I think she sacrifices as a way of maintaining her fantasy of what her life actually is. Yes. I, I think that the biggest thing about Stella is that appearance is... It's weird because her not being an actress... The idea that appearance would mean so much to her might not track, but she is the one who is super organized, who has a plan, who is keeping Charlie afloat, and it does feel very much like she is the kind of person who believes that if her life looks great from the outside, then it must be great. So regardless of what happened, Charlie, Charlie went and fucked some woman, and he and Stella know immediately that Stella is going to be willing to forgive Charlie. Yep. And it's Charlie's choice to walk out on that. And in fact, it's supported textually where she says, I tried calling you. I tried to find you. You never responded to me. Yeah. She follows through on the, the, the understanding that Charlie very angrily throws in her face. I think the whole reason is that all that she wants is this child. And yeah. for her perfectly manicured and perfectly planned out life to continue as is. Yeah. And if small details such as who her husband is have to be changed midstream, she can handle it. She's good at booking backup performers. Fuck you! I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but I... Did you just... I just, can't, I just figured that out. Oh my god! <laughs> That's so... Okay, I'm changing my entire opinion about this play. <laughs> Fuck. She is too competent! Yeah. Holy shit. That is so incredibly perfect. I can't talk about it anymore. So we're just gonna move on. Alright. Uh, by the way, do you find it odd that... There is no point where all four of these characters are on stage together. Yeah, that's actually something that I, I noticed in going back and rereading. And I think that it's partially just an idea that so many of these characters have two faces. They act one way. Charlie acts one way with Stella and another way with Clea. And Lewis. 
Yeah, and and Lewis is the same way. You know, and actually, mm-hmm. Lewis because he is sort of infatuated with both of the women acts more similar. But like, it is like every different three person group dynamic is different enough that if you were somehow try to slam them all together, you would get people who didn't know how to act in the same room. So I do think it's intentional. I think that it's it's oftentimes either Clea is this is the focus or Stella is the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, other than the one scene in which Charlie and Clea get caught by Stella. And then that's where there's that battle between that focus and Clea insists on being the focus. Yeah. Can I ask about your use of the phrase slam them all together? Because I would watch that. <laughs> no, you cannot. Okay. <laughs> Fuck. Um, well, okay. So I think that Charlie is indisputably the main character of this play. One of the main reviews of this play when it premiered criticized that Charlie's unraveling in the second act is unwarranted. And that was absolutely a a topic of conversation when we read this play within the collective. I mean, what does Charlie want? Because he says a lot of things mostly about what he doesn't want. But what is his motivation to just so easily cheat on his wife and abandon everything he had? I think the hard thing is that Charlie is written as a character who doesn't know what he wants. Who he's, if, he has, if he has a desire or if he has an ultimate goal, it is, it is hidden from himself. He doesn't know what he wants to do because the thing he wanted to do was to be a well-liked, well-revered actor. And that ship has sailed. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't found another desire after that. So he's still just going through the motions of trying to be this actor that he no longer is. But at the same time, he's done this long enough that he is jaded about the process. He wants he wants a role in a TV show or a movie or something like that. But he doesn't even want to admit that Nick's pilot actually exists. He is so insistent that everybody goes around and says, oh, I've got this in the work. This is a go picture. I've got the green light. I've got a pilot in the works. So it's just this idea that not only does he not believe that Nick actually has anything in the works, but only because he doesn't want to believe that this friend from high school who he thinks is a piece of shit has anything useful. He knows that you have to suck up to people who are producing things in order to get a part. But he refuses to do it. He thinks he should be offer only. <laughs> yes. But I also think he acknowledges his own self-delusion in recognizing that Nick's script, when he did read it, is such a pile of shit that the masses, the vapid masses, would appreciate it. I disagree that Nick's script was actually bad. Okay. I think that... There was no way that Charlie was going to read it and think it was good. Sure. But but his so the thing is what he's saying is I read this and it was terrible, which is how I know it's going to get made. Mm-hmm. Which means to me that he read it and it was good. So he knew it was going to get made, <laughs> but he is so blinded by his rage towards Nick that he must see it as utter drivel so he's so deluded charlie is he not he can reliable see past his delusion anything charlie says about any person i think you could reliably just assume that the opposite was true except when he's calling clea an idiot Clea's not an idiot though yeah <laughs> yeah shit i just Did your own thing <laughs> congratulations i just played myself now another possible motivation for charlie and his actions here could honestly be that he's steering into the cliche. He is at least self-aware enough to recognize that he fits the bill for exactly the kind of person who would cheat on his expecting wife with the young hot actress and then leave her. Uh, it's almost as as if he creates a self-fulfilling prophecy for everything else that happens in the play. When confronted by Stella with his relationship with Clea, he at first does the humble husband bit. 
oh, I'm sorry, it was a mistake, it never should have happened. And then he turns around on it and says, no, you know what, I don't want to feel anything real, you're too competent, you're the problem, basically, I just need to get out of here. He buys into the person that he should be and completely disregards the person that maybe he wants to be or could be. Either way, it's like he pursues, he directly pursues being the worst person that he can. You mentioned how little resistance he put up when casually seduced by Clea. And I think we can assume that that was a level of seduction that Clea performs regularly. Her ploy was successful with Charlie, where it may not have been with other men who weren't prepared to dive directly into the cliché. This came up in the reading, um, and, and the way that I put it is, I think that Charlie saw a version of his life that we've seen a thousand times in popular media, both in the movies and in the real lives of these Hollywood stars that we know, uh, and it's of the past his prime but still pretty good-looking actor who slips into this downward spiral of self-loathing, alcoholism, disenchantment with the entire industry, and then goes off and cheats on his wife of 14 years with some 20-year-old, just-got-the-hot-new-role woman, but that doesn't last very long because, of course, it of course it's not going to. And then he just continues down this spiral of just totally fucking his entire life. And I think that Charlie saw that as a character he recognized and said, yeah, I can play that role. Yeah. There is, in fact, a psychological concept called a stereotype threat, where persons confronted or presented with a certain stereotype tend to resemble that. So, for example, if you were to uh, give a group of people of all genders a math test, but tell the group women do worse on this test, then generally the results would bear out that people identifying as women would have performed less well on that test than men. Not because they are worse at that topic, but simply they are expected, even within themselves, to perform that the way. The idea was planted in them. Yes. By Leonardo DiCaprio. By... <laughs> who is such a good metaphor for the performative industries as a whole that with this play, those gods that Charlie worships are really the ones that let him think this is what a good relationship looks like versus this is the character that I get to play. Yeah, definitely think so. And and I think that if you're looking for, and, and we are, because this is a podcast that discusses plays, we're looking for a meaning behind this play. Desperately. It, and desperation is a potential meaning. <laughs> but I do think that... I do think something you can take from this is sort of the performativity of our everyday lives. And we've got characters being the characters that they think they're supposed to be in the situations that they're in. And I just think about how much media in general actually influences people's actions, which then ties into influencing more media and tying into more actions. And, and a weird example that I use is that from watching MTV, oh. <laughs> from watching music videos and movies and television, as an adolescent boy, I learned what parts of women I was supposed to be checking out or finding attractive oh yeah long before i actually started finding them attractive right and so i think about the the way that people talk and the way that people act is is there any way to quote unquote naturally come upon your idiosyncrasies or the way that you act or some of the phrases that you use or is it always the case that you saw a movie or a TV show in your formative years and you recognized something that you liked in a character and then incorporated that into your personality. I, I, I love this and I think that this is heartbreaking because this is the closest to real meaning that I've understood from this play yet here. There's a band that I really like that actually my friend is married to the bassist. They're called The Matches. They're from San Francisco. They're fucking amazing. But in one of their songs, they have the line... I'm the sum of all my friends, and all my friends are some of me. And if you're some way just like them, then I am you to some degree. 
it's a very well written line and it reminds me every time that it's not just from our interpersonal relationships that we steal habits and traits. We're presented with this ideal on TV and said, this is what a man looks like. This is what a husband looks like. One could argue it's the presentation of toxic masculinity that drove Charlie to this. And coming from a play in 2006 before that was really in the mainstream conversation is a pretty interesting thing. And Teresa Rebic might have been closer to the pulse than I initially gave her. Yeah, so I, I think that's, that's sort of the interesting idea. And, and once again, something that is present in the play, but not necessarily so objectively the point that you could say this is actually what this this play means. Yeah. But I think it's a comment on both how Hollywood and New York actor performative societies change people, mm-hmm. but not just the people who are in those societies. Mm-hmm. That media goes on to change the entire world that we live in yep. and to create these sort of stereotypical stories and tropes that we can attach to other people and ourselves. Yes. There are ripple effects beyond our imagining. Well, and it's it, it paradoxically continues to fold in on itself so that the more that we see in media that we feel like represents us, the more we continue to reflect that media back to it. Yeah. I mean, shouldn't this just have been a BoJack Horseman episode? Definitely could have. Oh, shit, I totally skipped the scene where they're fucking hanging out in Clea's apartment and she leaves and kicks him out. Oh, shit. That is why there are seven scenes. Whatever. Must not have been important. Well, anyway. Okay, Dylan. Well, thank you for really a wonderful conversation. By the way, uh, just oh, hey, had wait, a... wait, wait. Before we, before we go. Oh. Um, I did want to give you a chance. I've got to run. i got to do a thing. I mean, you just... We're almost out of vodka. So before, I've, I've before we go that. on anymore, I'm going to go grab some. Oh, sure. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to... To discuss something that, so you texted me at like 2 a.m. And I could tell that you were kind of freaking out, but you were really excited. And you told me that you had just had a really awkward sex dream about a close personal friend. And it was so vivid. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about what happened in that dream. Okay, so thank Thank you. This is actually going to be very helpful for me. So let me set the scene. The beach, Southern California. A condo just off the water. The waves crashing. How's my ASMR? Is it pretty good? Okay, thank you. I always... Please continue. I always forget what ASMR stands for, but then I kind of don't want to know. Anyway, interior. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You forgot fade in. (laughs) Or did you fade in? No, it's a smash cut. Interior. (laughs) (laughs) Your movie starts. You're... Your movie version of your dream starts with a smash cut. <laughs> yes. From what? From the ocean. From whence? From. <coughs> <coughs> smash cut interior. A large bearskin is spread out on the floor in front of a roaring fireplace. The fog from the ocean collects on the windows and slowly turns in <laughs> slowly turns into ribbons running down the glass a knock on the door i turn from the couch to the bedroom who's knocking in the bedroom why would you need to knock there i'm not sure the door opens click Click, click, high-heeled stiletto shoes on the floor quietly make their way down the hallway towards me. I take a deep breath. I've been waiting for this. It's my birthday, after all, which is coming up, and I can't help but mention that you haven't said anything about what we're doing for my birthday. 
my birthday is before yours. My birthday is more urgently approaching than yours. I mean, not by the time we publish this, but at this moment. <laughs> my birthday is tomorrow, you piece okay, of shit. Yeah, I take your point. <clears throat> it's actually... It's soon not tomorrow no it's sunday it's objectively not tomorrow anyway um <coughs> then around the corner you step wait by you do you want me to finish the story or what i mean i want you to stop clipping the microphone but my ASMR is not that practiced. I I honestly, I'm at the point where I need to decide if the sex dream is about you. And and while while what appeared in my dream was actually an amalgam that didn't not look like you, I'm just I'm not that comfortable, uh, you know, on a podcast that's nationally published. Uh, and sponsored by Netflix. And st- <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway, you were wearing high heels and this tight little garter belt, and uh, I went and jumped in the ocean. I'm really not sure why, but then uh, you joined me, and together uh, with our Wonder Twin powers, we actually managed to call a group of dolphins, a pod, if you will. And I don't know if you knew this, but a group of dolphins is called a pod. And also, a group of owls is called a parliament. So are you telling me that a group of dolphins going fishing is a podcast? <laughs> Only if they're fishing from land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not pod trolling. <laughs> no. That would be ridiculous. They don't have internet access. All right, so I feel like we've lost the thread here. Sounds like you ran away from me. You fucked the sea. Yes, actually. And the sea is the close personal friend that I I texted you about being in my sex dreams. It wasn't you. It was the sea. Honestly, I like the sea more than you. It's definitely the sea. Definitely the sea. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, I must say that I am wholly unsatisfied, but you have technically satisfied the requirements of my question. Uh, I'm used to you being unsatisfied. I said good day. You sure did. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to MTC by MTC. Please like, share, and subscribe. Please also wear your mask, get vaccinated, be safe, and be kind to each other. We'll see you next week. Exactly. Precisely. Minutes to Curtain is a product of the Miscreant Theater Collective, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It is written, produced, and performed by Andy Rogers and Dylan McDonald.